from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's Politically Georgia. I'm Patricia Murphy. Good morning. Seems like just yesterday that we were here. With the 2024 legislative session now underway, we'll talk with House GOP Majority Leader Chuck F. Stration about Republican priorities this year. I'm Bill Nygut. Then we'll cross the political aisle for a conversation with Justin Kiernan, a Democratic strategist and former top advisor to Stacey Abrams. I'm Greg Bluestein. Vice President Kamala Harris touches down in Atlanta for the 10th time since she won election. I have a live preview as I wait for her arrival in downtown Atlanta. Plus, a new court motion alleges Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis improperly hired a romantic partner to prosecute former President Donald Trump in the ongoing 2020 election interference case. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Welcome to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics. I'm Patricia Murphy in the studio today with Bill Nygut, while Greg Bluestein is calling in from his car as he waits for the press pool following Vice President Kamala Harris during her visit today. Greg, can you hear us? I can hear you great. This reminds me of the old (laughs) days, Patricia, when we we often taped this show before it became a radio show. There's a podcast in our cars as we were on the campaign trip. <laughs> yes, one time we actually taped the show in two cars right next to each other. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right after a Ron DeSantis event. So we, but now yeah. we are in the fancy digs, Bill Nygut, of WABE. Yeah, we're out of the rain. <clears throat> uh, what a miserable morning, certainly here in North Georgia, but I think across much of this state, people are really getting pounded. Oh my goodness. They're talking about flooding, road closures, and the uh, Georgia State House today gaveled in, is gaveling in um, a few hours late to allow members to come in safely. And that has happens to open up on the schedule for GOP Majority Leader Chuck F. Stration a chance to come on the show this morning and talk to us about what Republicans have as their priorities this session. Uh, Mr. Leader, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Patricia, Bill, and Greg for having me. Excited to be here with you today. Glad that the scheduling worked out so that I could join you. Yes, we took advantage of that the minute we heard it. We chased you across the Capitol (laughs) to say, oh, good. Uh, Now that you're starting late, you can come on the show with us today. Well, we heard a little bit from you yesterday about the priorities that House Republicans um, are going to be pushing forward. And as the GOP House Majority Leader, you're a big part of that. Well, yeah, it's... um, uh, very exciting to begin a new session each year. And we have a very important agenda to bring forward. Um, as we have discussed, real focus is public safety. Georgians deserve to feel safe, particularly in their own homes. Uh, we've had some very important measures that have been under consideration last session. I expect there'll be uh, further uh, bills coming along these lines this year addressing gang crime, which is the cause, it's estimated, of, of a majority of violent crime in Georgia has some sort of gang connection. Law enforcement compensation continues to be an important issue. There was a study committee who's worked on this issue since the 23 legislative session to really look at how we compensate state law enforcement officers and to ensure that 
um, that we're properly paying them for their tough job and important work. Um, I know that uh, education and literacy are other very important issues, which I look forward to talking about here today. But um, but I think it's going to be a very productive legislative session. And I'm excited that we're all here to get to work. Representative Estration, um, things are about to speed up really quickly. We have the eggs and issues breakfast on Wednesday. We have this governor state of the state on Thursday. A lot of those topics you just mentioned will probably be included in some of the discussion we're about to hear. But one of the biggest intrigues under the Gold Dome right now is something you didn't mention just now, which is the question of whether or not Georgia will expand coverage under the state's Medicaid program after about a decade of, of opposition from Republicans to that. I've heard from some House and Senate leaders that they're that they're open to the idea. Um, but I understand yesterday you were a little bit lukewarm about it. Is that is that an accurate way to portray it? What, I, what I'd say is throughout my time here at the Capitol, which it's been 10 years now, there has been an interest in ensuring that there's health care affordability and accessibility. That was under Speaker Ralston's leadership and uh, under Speaker John Burns, our now speaker's leadership this past year. Um, I know that through the what we call the off season, the time in between the legislative sessions, it was a study committee looking at certificate of need reform and also affordability of health care. Uh, in Georgia. And I'm certainly not an expert on these issues, but I look forward to hearing the recommendations of the folks who are. Chairman Butch Parrish and the other members who've served on this study committee have really looked into the detail to uh, bring potentially some legislation for this year. And I'll wait to hear their recommendations. Chuck, let me. Would you be personally open to the idea of expanding Medicaid? What uh, what my focus is, is continuing the House's strong record of ensuring that we have accessibility and affordability in health care for Georgians across the state. And uh, I think that we have some great issues and great work has been done over the decade I've been here that I love to talk about when when given a chance to do so. So that's my focus, continuing with that great record that we have. Chuck, um, let, let me ask you about another question about Medicaid. Um, we hear over and over again, primarily from Democrats, of course, how much federal money Georgia leaves on the table by not expanding uh, Medicaid to all who are eligible. Uh, on the other hand, Republicans have often argued that, yes, the feds right now and for the foreseeable future pick up most of the costs. But in the long run, the state may be stuck with some of those costs. Is that really do you believe the primary problem that Republicans have with a full expansion or to what extent is there partisan politics involved in this? Well, Bill, I certainly can't speak for others, but I know for me, uh, I am very proud of the record that we've had here at the state capitol. Under Governor Deal's leadership years ago, we were, I think, taking up very important measures to address healthcare accessibility in our state. And that uh, work and discussion has continued. And I think that uh, an important thing to consider is Georgia's in a great fiscal position right now. We've really uh, been good stewards of the taxpayers' money to ensure that uh, now our rainy day fund is well-funded, that we're in a strong fiscal position, really compared to many other states who are who don't have the strength of a budget like we do right now. So we're in a great position, and I continue to be mindful of the great work that we've done. We want to continue that as far as fiscal responsibility and in the area of healthcare affordability and accessibility. You talked a little bit earlier about education and one of the bills that ended up being kind of a surprise um, 
addition to the calendar at the end seemed to be the voucher bill. It passed through the Senate, but then came over to the House and um, got some really important and crucial opposition from rural Republican lawmakers who said they were concerned about what that would do um, to funding within their own communities. Can you talk a little bit about that voucher effort and whether you think that the House is going to take up what the Senate passed again or try and rework it? What do you, where do you see that going? I think the details of the bill are really important, which is, first of all, this would only apply to failing schools. The bottom 25% of schools in the state where parents are crying out for something to be done to address the educational needs in their communities. And what I've found as I've talked to voters across the state is that it's really a nonpartisan issue. It's very specific to situations in certain school systems or with certain schools. I think that um, the issue is very complex as it's been uh, debated here at the Capitol. There are certain members who had problems with certain aspects of the bill. Some felt the bill didn't go far enough. You know, obviously, when you have 180 members, you can get 180 opinions about whether a legislation is good or bad or should, can be improved in different ways. I expect that this discussion is going to continue, but I appreciate you referencing also there's been other legislation in the area of education. I mean, we have had some really landmark bills, in my view, that have come forward focusing on particularly literacy. So uh, literacy at the third grade level is a critical marker for a student's future success. And um, and so I think focused attention on that area so that we can give students, educators, parents, the tools that they need to be successful to achieve those literacy benchmarks is a critical effort that we need to continue. We're here with House Majority Leader Chuck Abstration. Chuck, I want to follow up on Patricia Murphy's question just now. 16 House Republicans ended up voting against that voucher measure. One Democrat uh, voted for it. That was Misha Maynard, who's now a Republican. Um, but there, I've talked to some of those 16 House Republicans who voted against it. doesn't seem like many minds have changed. We'll see. But how much effort will your caucus, will your leadership group put behind putting this back and convincing some of those 16 House Republicans who voted against it to change their minds? Or is this going to be just something you 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 maybe put up for a vote and then move on? Well, I think that um, it's important just to start with when a member has a bill and I've been a sponsor of many, many bills in the past. When you have a bill, it's, you know, your part of your work on it is to meet with members, to hear out their concerns, to see if those concerns can be addressed within the existing bill or, or the member can be further educated on what's going on with the specifics. I think that often, um, you know, being a member of leadership, when a bill makes it to us, it's really, you know, at that point, the question is kind of where do members come down? How do folks feel about it in the chamber? And what's the anticipated vote? And so I think that uh, that process is going to take place, really. This, you know, and as session begins now, it really allows members to focus on specific proposals that are before them and to make a determination as to um, how that how they feel is the proposal that that has come up. This uh, this bill, I think, being put forward um, on onto the floor of the House for a vote, I think, was a good thing. It's good for members to go ahead and register how they feel on a specific proposal, and um, and I think that uh, you know leadership's willingness to let that debate go forward occur is a good thing. That's you know that is. Uh, that's what our legislative body is all about, is productive debate about important issues that matter to the people of Georgia. I'd love to turn to the issue of crime. And as you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the conversation, Chuck, um, that there will be legislation uh, uh, designed to crack down specifically 
on gang crime. The state of Georgia has had an interesting relationship to how it deals with crime, as you well know. I mean, Nathan Deal gained national attention um, and praise for the fact that he looked at ways to uh, reduce the prison population, to try to get uh, uh, inmates who had been convicted of nonviolent crimes back into the workforce when they were released. So he, he went a different direction. Back in the 90s, of course, Governor Zell Miller uh, went the, the, the harder way with a two strikes and you're out uh, law that uh, filled the prisons uh, at a time when there really wasn't enough space for them. It, it looks like the governor and with uh, apparently the, the um, help of you in, the, in leadership in the House are going back a little bit back toward the uh, side of this thing, which is harder on crime than Nathan Deal seemed to want to be. Well, I think that there's an important distinction, which I, as a former felony prosecutor working in law enforcement myself, had a considerable amount of experience in the courtroom dealing with these kinds of issues. And what I found is that Governor Deal's proposals were always that criminal justice should be uh, of a mindset where uh, folks who are deserving of harsh sentences receive those. In other words, public safety concerns and threats. And the uh, legislation that certainly I've worked on and having worked on criminal justice reform myself in the past certainly cut out and excluded circumstances where sentencing was necessary because of particularly to separate uh, uh, individual from society who's committing violent crimes. And so uh, so that was always part of criminal justice reform. And I think that um, that identifying crimes that are related to violence or organized criminal enterprises I think that is in many ways very consistent with criminal justice reform and ensuring that there's proper sentencing in those circumstances. You know, it's believed that 14,000 current inmates in Georgia prisons have a gang affiliation. And as I said, a majority of violent crime has some gang connection. Many think that that percentage is much higher than just 50%. And so really, if you're able to address this underlying connection with violent offenses, which is causing such um, distress to Georgians, then I believe it's incumbent on lawmakers and leaders to work on ways to address that. Georgians deserve to feel safe. And law enforcement officers need to know that they're supported by a legislature who understands the difficult job that they have day in and day out uh, for public safety, and that we're here to support them, support those good efforts. And we want to keep Georgians safe, particularly when you're in your own home. You know, that is your home is your castle, as it said, it's your sanctuary. And uh, any ant- attack on Georgians anywhere needs to be taken seriously. Um, let me just follow up on that very quickly. Um, one of the innovations that Governor Deal put in place were the uh, accountability uh, courts for adults who were accused of felony drug crimes. Um, it was a diversionary program. It kept, again, the prison population down a bit. Do you imagine the legislature is going to want to reverse that moving forward? I'm a big believer in accountability courts, Bill. I've worked in accountability courts as a prosecutor. I've seen the success that they have, not only in drug courts, as you mentioned, but mental health court, veterans court. There's now a accountability court for parents uh, around the issue of paying payment of child support. There are these new innovations that are being brought forward to really work on the underlying causes that that 
uh, will result in people being in the criminal justice system. And so I'm a big believer in those. I think that they're great programs. I've seen the success from them and that they are tremendous cost savings. Ultimately, if you're able to, uh, you know, not only you know, save the person who who is involved, get them on the right path, but save the state money, state and local governments money in the long term. It's really a, a, a good program. Yeah, our audience should know that you are, of course, a practicing attorney in Gwinnett County. Um, also, you have been involved over the years in hate crimes legislation here in Georgia. And there's an effort and has been an effort to add anti-Semitism to Georgia's hate crime statute. Um, I know you've supported that in the past. Where do you think that's going and why has it been hard to get this done, do you think? Well, I, as you know, carried the hate crimes law several years ago. I was the signer of an important uh, bill along these lines two years ago. And then this this bill you're referencing, I'm a co-sponsor of. And as a member of leadership, I don't get to co-sponsor much, but I wanted to really make a clear statement that the Republican caucus opposes anti-Semitism, that defining anti-Semitism in state law is important. Not only are these attacks, these criminal offenses, an attack against a group based upon their religion, it's an attack on all of us. I mean, these kinds of crimes undermine law and order across our state. And so we need a definition in state law. I'm very proud to say the House passed the measure in the 2023 session. It was bipartisan, but every every Republican in the state house voted in favor of the anti-Semitism bill. And so I want to continue to see that progress is made so that this bill can be to the governor's desk this year. It continues to be a major priority. And I and I'm very proud of of the record that we have speaking unequivocally in support of it. We're here with House Majority Leader Chuck Estration. Chuck, I feel like I can call you Chuck because I've known you since college days when we sat next to each other in Charles Bullock's class. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> of course. Well, I had a lot less gray hair back then. So. There you go. Yeah. Well, uh, we almost have to hit a break, but, um, but Chuck, there's always You've been here for 10 years. Uh, believe it or not, this is my 21st session covering the legislature. It always seems like there's an issue that is not even on the radar in January, but becomes like the big issue uh, in March. I know it's hard to ask you to predict what that will be, but I'm going to do it anyway. What do you think that that surprise issue could be? What what might bubble up as one of the biggest debates when we're uh, when we're ready for signing die? It's always tough to predict big issues. I'm almost afraid to make predictions because uh, once session gets going, so many unpredictable things can happen. But just briefly, I'm proposing the creation of a new city in northern eastern Gwinnett County called Mulberry. Very excited about the proposal. There is zero city property tax as part of the proposal. Be about 41,000 Gwinnett County residents as part of this proposed city who would have local control of planning and zoning issues. There is uh, nonpartisan, bipartisan support at the local level for it. It's very a well-embraced idea and concept, and it would only come into effect if voters approved it on the ballot. So I expect that uh, this issue is going to be something we'll be discussing here at the state capitol. I'm very excited to to talk about. I think that uh, local government uh, like that gives a great opportunity to reflect the concerns or issues or thoughts of constituents very effectively. And if the city of Mulberry is is created, maybe you can have me back on the show next year to to talk about how the new city is going to work. Who does who doesn't want to live in a place called Mulberry? Mulberry. That just it sounds, sounds like delightful. the name of a town in a sitcom. <laughs> close, to Mayberry. close to Mayberry, right down the yeah, street Mayberry. from Mayberry. Um, one more crucial question: Everybody in the capital wants to know, and we think you might or might not have the answer. We're going to find out. 
what is the calendar going to look like? Will lawmakers be working on Fridays? I've been asked to ask you. Well, as you all know, last legislative session, we passed a calendar the first week that provided all 40 days. And one of my jobs as a majority leader is to work with the Senate majority leader to try to work out a potential calendar. And that's something that we're working on this week and very optimistic about um, our work together on that. Uh, Senate's great to work with and look forward to uh, reporting back to you once once I have an update there. <laughs> okay, thank you. Well, I would like to pass on multiple votes for Fridays off. Um, everybody has places to be. Well, listen, um, Chuck Abstration, thank you so much for joining us today. We know you've got a full agenda, uh, but please come back and uh, talk to us again when your calendar lets you. Thanks for having me. we Will do. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll talk to one of Stacey Abrams' key advisors from 2022 about how Democrats are gearing up in Georgia for President Joe Biden's bid to win another victory here in this crucial swing state ahead of the White House race. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. That's AJC.com newsletters. I'm Patricia Murphy, along with Bill Nygut and Greg Bluestein calling in from his car on Vice President Kamala Harris's pool duty, or he's about to get pulled into the pool duty in just a little bit here, but we've got him. We'll, we'll talk to him when we've got him, but also here to join us to talk about what Democrats need to do in tw to win in 2024 is veteran Georgia Democratic operative Justin Kernan. Justin, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me on today. Yeah, it's terrific to have you. I think this is the first time that I've been able to talk to you on the show. Um, I'm sure we'll continue to have you um, because you you have been in Georgia doing Democratic politics for a long time. Um, tell us just a little bit about yourself. You were also a top advisor to Stacey Abrams. Yes. And so um, actually, uh, 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 Stacey Abrams gave me my first job in politics about 12 years ago when she was first elected House Minority Leader. Um, so I've been working uh, with and for uh, Stacey for a very long time. Uh, outside of the work that I do uh, on the uh, political side, I'm also a registered lobbyist uh, here in the state of Georgia, um, down at the Capitol. As we speak, uh, getting ready for, uh, for a session, and then um, and then so political strategists and, and lobbyists as well. Justin, um, I, I'm here sitting shortly, just a few feet away from where Vice President Kamala Harris will soon show up at the gathering spot in Atlanta to talk to voting rights activists. And as I was preparing for her visit, it's her 10th since she was elected, by the way. But as I was uh, preparing for a visit to Georgia, um, I was talking to a lot of voting rights activists, including Stacey Abrams, your old boss, about um you know, this seems like it's a low point right now for voting rights activists in Georgia who want to expand ballot access. Uh, there's been a number of court setbacks, of course. The federal voting protections have stalled in Congress. And there's talk of uh, new GOP efforts to overhaul election laws in Georgia. What do you think the state of the land right now is as for, for Democrats who are trying to uh, expand ballot access right now? I mean, the fact that the vice president 
of the United States is here in Georgia to meet with people to speak about this issue. That's showing how big of a problem that it really is. Uh, in a lot of conversations, people try to sweep it under the rug and, and, and try to act like it's not one of the top issues. But the fact that you have the uh, vice president while on the campaign trail meeting with the uh, top voting right activists shows that there's an issue. Uh, but you have a lot of mass voting challenges, legislation that was passed here in Georgia to allow people to actually just challenge voters. Individuals can actually challenge voters. And then we see that that's actually being targeted at people of color. Um, according to Fair Fight, over 100,000 people in the last election cycle were targeted and uh, they were challenged. And then you also have people that are being removed from the voting rolls and things of that nature. So we still do have some barriers to people participating in their constitutional right to uh, to vote. Justin, it's uh, Bill Nygut. Um, of course, she also makes yet another visit to the state and reminds us what a crucial battleground state Georgia will be in the fall. Um, but we also know that the campaign, the Biden campaign, is struggling right now in terms of uh, attracting the kind of support from black voters that is absolutely necessary uh, to win the election in the fall, at least the polls suggest that's true. So does anecdotal evidence. Um, and I, I assume it's not really a coincidence that Vice President Harris comes to Atlanta uh, a day after President Biden gives his speech at Mother Emanuel Church, in which he talks about how uh, black voter talked about how black voters uh, have uh, struggled with voting rights issues and uh, uh, other problems in turning out at the polls. How are you going to mobilize uh, black voters to get behind Joe Biden at a time when he seems to be struggling, particularly with that demographic, as well as young voters and others that are part of that Democratic coalition? Right. I think it's important to... Um recognize the fact that it's not just the, the the Biden campaign. These are things that Democrats have to do in general. And basically what that is, is actually invest time in, in, in communities in Georgia. And so doing speeches is great. Connecting with voting rights activists is absolutely necessary. And now we have to actually listen. So we have to spend time in communities across the state of Georgia and actually listen to the plights and the needs of the people that are that you're looking to, to, to get to vote for you. And when you look at the number Numbers. And when you look at, you know, even what happened last year and how, you know, the uh, the road to the White House came through Georgia, uh, black voters have been the uh, carriers of the party, but not been the darlings of the party. And so it's important for us to uh, Democrats as a whole to actually spend time investing in black communities and listen. Every time that you have a, 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 a meeting, it should be a listening session so that you can hear what these pain points are and what these issues are. That's the only way to try to get people on board because you have to have new talking points and you have to address real issues. Justin, we have heard uh, uh, many uh, spokespeople like yourself, African-Americans, say that about the Democratic Party for years, that you can't just count on black people to turn out to vote for you. You've got to invest in the community. I mean, and, and it's true, and it and, and it will remain true. And it's not just for uh, Democrats; it's anyone that's seeking the uh, uh, vote of of African Americans. But I'm just uh, here speaking on behalf of of a, a particular party in general at the at the moment. But that's the gist of it all. People vote for. Um, 
you know, when they're when they feel heard and when they feel connected to a candidate. And so regardless of who you are, you have to make some type of connection with the candidate, uh, with the constituents that you're looking to vote for you. And that can't come by way of of empty promises or things of that nature. It has to actually at this point be something tangible that people are willing to vote for and willing to support. We're here with Democratic strategist Justin Kernan joining us to talk about Democrat strategy ahead of 2024. And Justin, uh, you referenced the Democrats' huge victory in 2020. Winning the White House with the help of Georgia was something a lot of people did not see coming. Um, But then just two years later, Stacey Abrams, who really is a darling of the Democratic Party, um, huge star, raised tons of money, um, finished well behind Governor Kemp. What lessons should Democrats take out of that Abrams campaign going into the next 11 months. How much time do you have? Um, <laughs> All the time you were, need. <laughs> there were there were a lot of lessons that we learned. There were a lot of things that we did extremely well um, on that campaign. When you look at some of the numbers, when you look at African-American voter uh, turnout, it was amongst the highest in the country. And so there were a lot of things that were done uh, very well. The difficulty and the challenge that the campaign faces, you, you were running against a very uh, popular incumbent governor. The first election, it was an open race when you have an incumbent um, that is fully aware of who his opponent was going to be for the next four years. Um, and the governor was able to do a lot of uh, a lot of things that led to a great impact. And there was money being spent um, in certain communities during the election and things of that nature. And he had his own uh, outreach uh, programs as well. And so, you know, you 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 have all of those, you know, things going on and it prevents a, a challenge. But when you look at the uh, when you look at certain numbers, we still did pretty well. And, you know, uh, when you look at it overall, I mean, she still got more more votes than any other Democrat uh, has ever gotten during 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 that type of election. So there's there's a lot of things that that can still be done. But once again, one of the things we learned was investing time in communities and investing early. Your outreach programs and all of those things have to be a part of your strategy from the very beginning of beginning of your campaign. And you have to you know, just educate people on on your campaign all the way through, and then new voters. New voters are your 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 target, but they're also the hardest to get mobilized to vote. So you have to really pay a lot of attention uh, to those new voters and get the, give them a reason to come out and vote. Justin, one thing that I've learned as I talk to campaign people, to campaign operatives like yourself who are knee deep in the actual machinery of, of campaigns, is there's a worry that Republicans have started to catch up to Democratic ground game efforts, voter mobilization efforts, some of the efforts that your old boss, Stacey Abrams, pioneered in doing the 2018 campaign. Um, are, are you, as you look at November, as you look at it in November, are you worried that the ground game, the Democratic ground game in Georgia, um, that, that, that mobilization effort isn't up to snuff right now? Or do you think there's plenty of time um, to get it to that point uh, for Democrats in, 20, in November? There's plenty of time, uh, to do it between now and, and November, but it has to start now. And you have to uh, not just wait until October, you know, during that get out the vote time to, to really mobilize those voters. You have to start 
all of your planning and you have to start hitting the ground very early. And then, you, like I said, the investment in the communities, because one, one thing about it is uh, your voters aren't a monolith. And so your same message that you're using in one community is not going to resonate in another. And so your messaging has to be targeted uh, specifically to the people that you're trying to reach and the voters that you're trying to uh, connect with. And that's the other thing. Connecting with the voters is very important, not just stopping by and giving information. There has to be a genuine connection to the uh, the, the people that you're looking to vote for you and the actual candidate. And so spending time and investing time, having real conversations in community and, and not coming in uh, with prescriptions without actually understanding what the pain points are. Justin, um, there's no question that the Biden White House and certainly the Biden campaign have a level of frustration over the fact that as the economy has improved, uh, they cannot seem to get that message across to voters who still are troubled about their where they stand in terms of uh, their spending power. Mortgages are still high and the like. And, and so I really want to talk about what the campaign is now turned to focus on, at least for the time being, and that is Donald Trump as a threat to democracy. At, at, as you think about Georgia voters— is that a theme that really can resonate with voters? Is that a theme they should be carrying out through the campaign, his being a threat to democracy? It's a theme that resonates with some voters. But once again, uh, like I previously previously stated, we're not a monolith. Your voters in general aren't. And so that one message is not going to be enough for everyone. When you talk about threats to democracy, that's going to speak to some other people. But yeah, the economy is doing better, but everyone's not doing better. And so if you're still struggling, if you're still hurting, if you still can't afford your mortgage payments, if you are still dealing with issues with, with schools or whatever your issues are, if those things are still top of your mind, you're not worried about the threat to democracy. You're worried about how to feed my family, how to do all of these things that I need to do on a regular basis. But Justin, do you feel like Democrats are answering that question? What we see from Democrats, um, particularly federal Democrats, they come in and we're talking about infrastructure, super important, um, talking about um, new energy and ways to be funding school buses and funding um, green energy and creating those jobs. But I don't know if I hear that kind of I know you can't pay your rent. Like, I know you can't afford food. Is Are you hearing it? And are we, um, what do you think is accounting for that, that gap in messaging? I think we're still at the beginning stages of all of this. The election is not until November and okay. there is no primary opponent. Um, yep. And so you have time to really uh, delve into that. And uh, the other thing about it is the president's not the only person that is on the ballot. And so you have down ballot candidates that will be able to help and carry that message, but they're not running yet. You know, your legislature is still in session. They're not running for their reelections until after they finish, you know, up here and then your other candidates as well. So I think you'll see all of that stuff start to develop uh, as more candidates are starting to actually run for reelection. And you'll see all of that probably start after qualifying. Okay. And you've talked about the need to invest early, to be in communities early, to be having those conversations early. Um, it seems like it's more medium and not so early anymore. Are you seeing that kind of activity on the ground from Democrats right now? 
I think it still is early. It's okay. it's we're, we're in January and the election's not until November. I would think it would be a different conversation if this was in the primary in which, um, you know, you have to, you know, do it by the spring. But, you know, we, we are still early. There's a time for that big, massive groundswell. There's a time to uh, staff up and do all of those things. There's an uh because of the fact that we've had so many competitive elections here, the infrastructure is still in place. You know, there's a lot of um, consultants and grassroots folks and all of the folks that are ready to work. And it's just about getting all of those fo folks actually uh, working and and mobilized. Justin, I recognize that in January, things are not going to change. And I also know that I'm going to ask you a question. That's a tough question for you uh, to uh, have to deal with. Is Joe Biden the right candidate? to take on Donald Trump, you know as well as uh, we do that there are many Democrats who are disappointed that the president didn't decide to step down and allow someone else the opportunity to run. I don't think that's something that we can really debate at the moment because of the fact that uh, this is a cliche phrase, but it is what it is. He is the president. He is the incumbent. He is the candidate. And so I feel that the conversation should be had about what can be done moving forward, as opposed to having conversations about is this the, the you know, is he the right person uh, for the uh, for the job? Yeah, it is what it is. Is not the bumper sticker that <laughs> yes, I'm looking exactly. for. But I actually reach out to Democratic I'm voters. I'm in a little bit of trouble yeah. for that remark. No. But, but <laughs> the statement is like we're, we're, we're sitting here, we're trying to debate whether or not you know that I, that that's a more of I, I guess you know uh, something that you can tell in the future, uh, possibly once the uh, votes have been casted and and you see what the turnout is. But at the moment, I think we need to focus on what we need to do to mobilize voters. What we need to do the messages that we need to have and how we can actually uh, impact people in, in, in a major way. Yeah, I'm, I'm really just kidding. I've <laughs> talked to a lot of Democratic voters, especially older voters who are like, I don't care how old Joe Biden is. I talked to one Democratic voter who said, I would vote for Joe Biden in a hearse before I would vote for Donald Absolutely. Trump. Absolutely. But of course, you also said a lot of older voters. Well, yes, exactly. and they'd like to go for the younger voters. Let's talk about those younger voters really quickly, Justin, because um, we could talk to you forever. But tell us about what younger voters are thinking right now in your mind. And what's the best way for candidates to be reaching those young voters that they've got to get to turn out in this just battleground 50-50 state? I remember when I was a young voter. Oh, no, um, so do I. I, I. I'm aged out of that. I'm aged out of that group um, here, and so. But but younger voters, uh, they they those are the voters that really need to feel a connection because those are your newer voters, and they're looking for a reason why. And you can't use that the the same messages or messaging that worked on my generation or previous generation. And it was like this is your duty. This is your constitutional right. People fought and died, even though those things are true, and you have to tell those stories because it's a fact, but they're looking for reasons why they should actually participate. They're not looking for history lessons. And so you have to actually give them valuable information. You have to give them data. You have to give them something that they can actually uh, resonate with and say, hey, you know what? I can connect with that. I like that. I support that. I am willing to go and stand in line for hours and, 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 and vote for that. Justin, you've already said, and I think quite correctly, that people will vote for uh, Biden or against Biden on the basis of many, many different uh, factors. 
But I do think right now, when you talk about younger voters, there's a phenomenon that is unfolding that could really create problems for the president. And that is that younger voters are lean more toward the Palestinian cause in the war against Hamas than they do with um, Israel. And of course, the president has uh, shown full support for Israel in this war. And I just wonder, as time moves on, whether those younger voters can be brought back into the party or whether they're going to accept President Biden uh, regardless of his uh, position on Israel. And we don't know the answer to that. We, we don't know the answer uh, to that. I think when it comes to that, only time will tell. Um, that's going to be it. We, we, you know, you can't prognosticate something like that. It, it just depends on what happens between now and November. All right. Well, Justin Kernan, Democratic strategist, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. And we will be sure to have you back again soon. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, when we come back, we will look at a bombshell report from the AJC that a new court filing alleges Fonnie Willis, the district attorney of Fulton County, hired a romantic partner in the prosecution of former President Donald Trump in the election interference case. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access to the AJC for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more. Plus access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters, including Politically Georgia. So join our community today by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you always know what's really going on. I'm Patricia Murphy with Bill Nygut. Greg Bluestein did indeed have to step away to get into place for Kamala Harris's press pool. Well, Bill, last night, our colleagues, Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman, broke a huge story um, that defense attorneys in the case, um, the election interference case in Fulton County against Donald Trump, one of the defendant's attorneys filed a pretrial motion alleging that D.A. Fonnie Willis improperly hired a romantic partner to prosecute former President Donald Trump. Uh, there was not any concrete evidence in that filing, uh, but Willis's office has also not responded to this in any great detail. And it includes a number of other allegations that Willis's office did not file the appropriate paperwork when she hired this outside counsel um, and that uh, they are asking that uh, Willis and her basically her entire team be removed from the case. And uh it's I'm really trying to get my head around this, to be honest with you. You're so I mean, I did not see it online last night. I didn't see this story until like four o'clock this morning when I opened the e-paper and saw this spread across the top of the front page. And it it's stunning. It's shocking. As you point out, um, we don't know the facts of this completely right now. Uh, but um, the fact that uh, the story that that Tamar and Bill tell 
that um, Fonnie Willis, who appointed Nathan Wade, who typically is a defense lawyer, to be the chief prosecutor of the Trump conspiracy uh, uh, group, um, and allegedly has had a longtime romantic relationship with him. She was paying him a, a lot of money as a prosecutor in this case, and the allegations include the fact that she went on some pretty lavish vacations with him during all of this. So it's it, it's just shocking to think. Of. And what's also interesting is this comes from a lawyer who represents one of the least known defendants in this entire concern, Michael Roman. I don't think I'd ever heard his name really until yes. this story. One of the lowest profile defendants in one of the highest profile cases yeah. in the country. I mean, if not the world, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but you could not have more scrutiny over a legal uh, proceeding than we have right here in Fulton County. And a little bit of context about the timing. Yesterday was the deadline for pretrial motions in this case. So any um, anybody on either side who wanted to make a motion to dismiss or make a motion to um, make a comment about uh, the attorneys or the case, uh, et cetera, et cetera, had to file it by yesterday. And so we have a situation where we have allegations against Fannie Willis, but no evidence presented. And um, um, they uh, did not. They have a. They allude. The defense attorneys allude to potential evidence within Wade's um, divorce proceedings, but those have been sealed. Those proceedings have been sealed in a way that the defense attorneys also said were improperly sealed. Exactly. And they would like to have those unsealed. And when they potentially do have that unsealed, they said that's when they would present more evidence of this. But they have seen the contents of those filings. And um, Willis's office has said that they will respond to these allegations in court filings as well. That could happen today. That could happen later this week. We don't know when that would happen. Um, she has been accused by Donald Trump of having a romantic relationship before mm -hmm. uh, with uh, a previous defendant in the Young Thug trial. Uh, Willis at that time did deny that really vocally. Yeah. And so I think that's why their um their silence so far on this has also left us with more a lot more questions than answers. Um I just went back to look at uh, uh Bill and Tamar's story and saw they report that Nathan Wade his law office has been paid nearly $654,000 since January of 2022 uh, according to the county records that they checked, making him the highest paid prosecutor in uh, the state. And um, so, again, if, in fact, he's been making that much money, if it's true that he and Fonnie Willis have been going on these uh, rather lavish vacations that the allegations contend they've done, again, it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, stunning. And, you know, we already went through this um, moment last, I think almost two years ago now, you'll correct me, when um, Burt Jones went to court and uh, argued that he should be excluded as a target of her investigation because Fonnie Willis had held a fundraiser for his Democratic opponent in the race for lieutenant governor. And Judge Robert McBurney said, yep, that's exactly right. Um, and for a short time, we all, maybe not a short time, a lot of us questioned, why didn't Fonnie Willis know better than to 
you know, get involved in a campaign when she's dealing with this kind of case. And I think we're wondering the same thing now. If this is true, what was she thinking? Yeah, and it is a what the judge called in that Burt Jones case a what were you thinking moment. Yeah. And he said he really had no choice but to sever the Burt Jones allegations off from the rest of the case. And that has now left the lieutenant governor in a totally separate legal situation than all of the other uh, people involved in this, and many of whom have had felonies filed against them and find themselves in really serious legal hot water. Now, the lieutenant governor said, you know, he he does he's done nothing wrong. He's ready for an investigation. But that still is that has never moved forward an inch because of that really serious lapse in judgment. Yeah. I think that's all you could call, call so, it back then. So what do you think about the fact you you alluded to the fact that when Trump accused her of having a romantic relationship with uh, someone in the Young Thug trial, she spoke out. And as you point out. There's been silence from Fannie Willis and and her uh, people on this today. Now, maybe they'll wait and respond in court, but there's a public relations element of this that's terribly important. And the question is, what do you think about if they decide not to talk about this uh, publicly, but wait until they file a response in court? I mean, it feels like we need more information now. I think that is pretty obvious because yeah. um, now that the report is out there, the obvious question is, well, is this true? And um, any information from the DA's office to show that that's not true or if it is true to sort of say why the case is still um, airtight in their opinion. Uh, I think that's really important because, as you said, this is not just a legal case. There is this ongoing situation in the in the court of uh, public opinion and the importance of believing in the results of this trial and in having faith in both the prosecutors, the defense attorneys and the judge really makes a difference because we've already seen in our own polling that a majority of Republican voters in Georgia already believe that this is a politically motivated case mm. from Fonnie Willis. Yeah. Um, that's an extremely important data point when you look at Donald Trump being likely the nominee here in Georgia for the Republicans. If they if we have a half, you know, at least a quarter, maybe more of the state doesn't believe this is a as a real prosecution whether or not he's convicted, that may not even weigh into whether into how they're evaluating him as a presidential candidate. And that seems like a real problem. Um, so what's going to be also interesting is uh, let's just for the sake of argument, say this is a real this really is happening. They've had a romantic relationship. Um, I'm not sure that if Steve Sato had, as Trump's attorney takes us to Judge Scott McAfee, uh, as it, well, Mike, Michael Roman's attorney already has done that. Sato is likely to weigh in as well. But I'm not quite sure on what legal grounds this romance can have any impact on the um, charges against Trump and the co-conspirators and the likelihood that the trial will or will not go forward. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing what some of the legal experts tell our reporters as they pursue this story today. Yes. Well, embedded in this filing also um, are charges that he was they did not properly file the paperwork when he was sworn in. Uh, yeah, but, but McAfee already ruled that that was un irrelevant at this point. So. Yes. Uh, allegations that they didn't get the proper funding from right. Fulton County Commission. Um, lots of uh, details that they said the DA's office did not yeah. take care of and button up 
while this was happening. And I think that is a feels like a major problem as well. So it seems it feels like there's exposure here, whether it's true or not. And let me just say also, though, as a um, as a woman watching this unfold, there is no faster way to damage a woman's credibility than by accusing her of having an affair. And and that is why you kind of feel like you need answers here. If if it is true, it's a huge lapse in judgment. If it's not true, it's a very effective way to say this is all a sham. You are so right that somehow it is the woman who bears the heaviest burden in a situation like this. By the way, I know we're running out of time, but we should also point out that right now, Donald Trump is sitting in an appeals court in Washington uh, to uh, 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 argue, his lawyers are arguing, that all the charges against him in the federal court should be dismissed uh, because he was acting as president and therefore is immune from prosecution. And if for some reason the court agrees with that, uh, this is another issue that will go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And if they agree that he was acting in his capacity as president, that would probably spell uh, the likely end of the Fulton County case as well. Yes. So this is a this is, I guess, what they call a live wire. This is a hot case. This is a <laughs> hotly debated situation. Just because the trial hasn't started yet doesn't mean that it's not national news every time there's even a minor development. And we have here in Georgia what is potentially a major development in this case. Um, well, we are going to continue to talk about that, particularly as we continue to get more details from our reporters at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And if you have a question you'd like to ask us here on Politically Georgia, you can call our call-in hotline anytime, leave us a message, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the show during our Friday Listener Mailbag segment. That number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. We can't wait to hear from you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and you can share the show with a friend. Joining us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.